Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing to walk our way through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 64. Last week was a big episode. We walked through the story of Jesus' transfiguration on top of the mountain, and we were looking at all the many parallels between this encounter with Jesus on the mountain and Moses and how we see the, the first Redeemer in Moses back in Torah and the the yeah. second and the ultimate Redeemer in Jesus here in the Gospels, yeah. and all these interactions with Moses and Elijah actually appearing before them, and the parallels between Jesus and Moses' face shining with the glory of the Lord, and Peter having another opportunity to redeem himself after rebuking Jesus by saying, <laughs> like, noticing the, the glory being present, and what usually follows the glory is having a tabernacle for it to dwell. And he's like, it's good that this is happening. Like, let's build a tabernacle like for yeah. the glory to dwell as well as Moses and Elijah. And, um, and it's, yeah. it's almost as quickly as that moment happened, it was over. And then Jesus is right back to business and teaching his disciples about his upcoming suffering and death. Um, and that, they're not to tell anyone until the Son of Man is going to be raised and their perplexity at this. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, on one hand, it's a really big, exciting moment. I mean, all, obviously, we've never experienced it personally, but just to imagine something like that transfigured, I mean, that's a big deal. But, and I don't remember, I actually can't remember if we talked about this in that episode, this really represents kind of a pivotal moment in that from this point forward, although there's a lot that there is yet to cover, still at the same time, we now begin our journey toward Jerusalem. That's going to be like the major theme of the story as we go. And again, there's a lot in between here and there, but you're going to see that's how it works out. So uh, yeah, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. And, you know, I don't want to like give it away too soon or anything, but sometime in the next, I don't know, one, two, three, four, thirteen 13 episodes, we're going to actually hit the halfway point. We're getting close. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. So, I'm, ex- yeah, I'm excited about that. But what do you say we uh, keep moving toward it instead of just yapping so that we can actually get there? Mm, Okie dokie. Oh! All right. So, let's see. We're reading in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 16, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 18, and Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 40. And I'm going to go ahead and read in Mark. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, 
and they were not able. Now, just to kind of fill it out, I want to read uh, a little bit from Mar- uh, Matthew and Luke, extra description about what happens to this poor young man. Matthew adds the part where he says, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. All right, that seems pretty bad, pretty dangerous. Luke adds that it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. So whatever this spirit is, this this unclean spirit, this demon, whatever, it's pretty rough. Mm-hmm. That's all I can say. So what we've got, and remember the, the situation, we've got Jesus and Peter and James and John, they're coming down from the mountain. They're coming back from this experience, the transfiguration. And when they get down to where they left the other disciples, they go to meet up, they find them in the midst of a crowd. And this crowd is very excited to see Jesus. And I, I don't even know how did they know him? What you know, how how's all this coming about? And, and Mark even says they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Amazed about what? It's just very, very interesting. It's it's uh, it's like they give us information, but we have no way of turning that into anything. It's like all imagination at that point. But Mark, he even adds that there were scribes there. So these were like the the ones who were really, really supposed to know the law, the ones who who they they were the writers and all of that, and apparently they were there. And they were arguing with the disciples. And I don't know, arguing, maybe debating something, maybe a better way to look at it. Given the context, my guess is what they were arguing about, the, 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 the focus of their conversation was probably how to do a proper exorcism. And since it wasn't working, Whatever the disciples were doing, it wasn't working. Well, you can imagine this is like the perfect opportunity to argue, you're doing it wrong. Now, the thing is, and I know that we've talked about this in earlier podcasts, but exorcism was an actual, real known thing in and around Jesus' time. And much like you might imagine it because of modern movies or whatever you think about, I don't know, the Catholic Church or something that they have you know, uh, their their plan, this is how they do an exorcism or whatever. Well, there was kind of a similar thing in Judaism. And and they had, you know, instructions uh, to follow, rules, uh, here's how we do it kind of stuff. And so I have to imagine that that's what this whole little argument is about, stuff like that. So Jesus, I mean, he shows up and he's, he's trying to figure out what's going on. And he finally gets the story from uh, this boy's dad. So you have a boy, and we can't really tell. He could be a young man at this point, whatever. But he has a demon. And the disciples, we've talked about, they can't cast it out. But think about that. These are the same disciples that Jesus sent out on a mission. I mean, that's when we started calling them apostles, because that's what an apostle is, right? Someone sent on a mission. And when they went on that mission, Samuel, weren't they given authority over some things? Oh, for sure. 
to, to do not only casting out of demons, but of healing and all kinds of miraculous things. And then when they went and did this mission, when they came back, what did they say? Uh, I got crickets on that one. <laughs> what did they say about uh, what they were able to do? They healed the sick and they... Oh, okay. That they, that they actually performed what Jesus said that they had given, a, given them authority to do. Yeah, yeah. So here are these guys. And think about it. There's nine of them. They've already gone out and experienced doing this. They came back telling stories, right? And yet, in this particular instance, they can't cast it out. That's kind of weird, right? And then, uh, well, okay, so I did notice some translations go ahead and actually put the word epilepsy in here, as if this kid suffers from epilepsy. And on one hand, I'm going to say, you know what? That's understandable. I, I get why they did that. However, totally gives the wrong idea. And we're going to see this a little bit more as we continue, but I just want you to notice, even in this spot right here, when they describe the spirit, they say that the spirit that came upon the boy in childhood made him mute. Now, we read about all kinds of things and other things that I probably would have put at the top of the list, but the one that they thought was most important in the telling of the story here was that they made him mute. And obviously, that has nothing to do with epilepsy or whatever. So, this is, I mean, there's something kind of interesting going on here. And uh, so anyway, we got mute, we got other systems. That would be symptoms. Thank you very much. And uh, now this brings me back to, okay, so I'm imagining what people are hearing. I'm imagining what people have been told by other people or churches or whatever in their life. And let's at least say this. Samuel, can we say that every single sickness that we see in humans is caused by a demon? No. Not at all. Can we? All right. So can we say that no sickness that ever comes upon man in any way whatsoever is ever caused by a demon? Can't confirm that either. No. And I mean, in a way, um, uh, now for some people, they actually do believe one of those two extremes, but we're going to call those the extreme edges of of the this topic and say that, you know what, the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think for for anyone to act as though unclean spirits, demons, whatever, are not a real thing in the Bible, or even are not a real thing continuing on through history, even today, to say they don't exist at all, I think that's probably a bad idea. I think you're 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 missing out uh, on some potential truth that lies under there, and at the same time. I think it's silly for people to find a demon behind every bush to say that every single thing it must be caused by this. Sometimes, I mean, come on, the world's got bacteria and viruses and fill in the blank, all kinds of stuff. There's just stuff. And so when we see this, you know, try to find that reasonable place in the middle, that thing, try to stay away from those those edges where you're just too stiff and and find that spot in the middle. Now, Here's the thing, though. As a reader, or as you and I, Sam, are just talking about this, with the little bit that we've got so far, it's reasonable for us to begin to wonder, 
did the apostles only have that authority that we talked about, that power that we talked about? Did they only have it during that mission they were sent on? Seems kind of singular. Yeah. But the thing is, if you think about since that mission, up until now, have we had a lot of stories about them doing anything like that? Or did it just come back to being stories about Jesus? Now, I'm not saying that it is one or the other or even anything in between. I don't know, but I think it's reasonable for people to at least notice this and go, huh, I wonder. Mm -hmm. They were given that, and now they're struggling. What's going on? And by the way, we haven't seen much of any of it since, hmm, I wonder what that's about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Also, I have a kind of kind of a cool Torah connection with this little section that I want to write. I was thinking back, so this story comes directly after the transfiguration, and we already saw all the parallels between Jesus here and then Moses at Sinai. Well, what happened, let's, let's first go back to Torah, what happened after Moses, let's focus on the phrase, coming down off the mountain? He came down to is it was it uh, Joshua or Caleb or my who who was the one that he left in charge? Well, Aaron he left in Aaron, charge, but yeah. Joshua was his buddy. Yes, then. you're right, Aaron. Well, he came down to find the people and Aaron in complete chaos with the golden calf and then falling back into idolatry and Moses having to intercede and address this problem. And in a similar light, Jesus, Peter. Uh, James and John come down off the mountain, and it seems that there's also some level of chaos going on with this man and the scribes, and Jesus is now going to have to address that similarly like Moses did with the people back in the desert. Really good connection, Samuel. I like that a lot. I do. And I just can't help myself. Every time we talk about that story, I have to go back to Aaron. (laughs) It's like... Well, the thing is, I put all this gold in the fire, uh, and a cow came out. <laughs> Where's so, the beef? It's so ridiculous. The lamest excuse in history, and it's stuck in the Bible forever. Poor Aaron. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, that's a really good point, Samuel, because uh, that's actually, I think we may find that that ties in even as we continue down. So let's let's see what happens. We go on, we're looking at Matthew chapter 17, verses 17 and 18, Mark chapter 9, verses 19 through 27, it's kind of long, and Luke chapter 9, verses 41 through 43. And wouldn't you know it, I'm going to read the long one. Let's go to Mark. All right, here we go. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. 
and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. You could make movies out of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know why nobody's ever thought of it, but this yeah. is, yeah. They should call it The Chosen. <laughs> yeah. All right. So what do we got going on here? There's so much. First of all, he starts out uh, calling them a faithless and twisted generation. Oof. Now, I don't care who you are. Those are harsh words. But who's he really talking to? I, I on one hand, you know how when somebody just sort of speaks into the air, you know, like the, they're not really actually addressing the people around them. They're just sort of, this is my frustration. I'm going to let it out. It kind of seems like they're talking to nobody and then maybe talking to everybody all at the same time. It kind of it kind of feels like that. And And remember... Jesus was just up on the mountain going through the transfiguration and again we don't really know what was what was going on but Jesus it's like he was discussing the complete lowdown on how his mission here on earth is going to end. We don't know if he was actually told anything new or if he knew it all already but but some they were talking about it however it went. And he's he's now if he wasn't already, he is fully aware that this generation is not going to be bringing in the kingdom. They have already, in effect, rejected him. And in rejecting him, they've rejected God. And ironically, I don't know, I think it's ironic, this generation may have wanted the Messiah to come as much as or possibly even more than any other generation in Israel's history. And yet, they were not accepting him. Not really. They wanted him to be different. They didn't want him, uh, they didn't They didn't want to have to repent properly. And so in that sense, they were unbelieving or, or I don't know, we could say faithless. Uh, they were crooked or twisted in all of their thinking and actions. They just wanted that conquering king to come and fix it all. And that wasn't the way it was going to go. And so you see it in Jesus. He's got that, how long am I to bear with you? I mean, he's kind of frustrated. And remember, this is another thing. Where were they, Samuel? Where, where, what was the mountain that the transfiguration happened on? Which one did we choose? Is it Mount Hermon? Yeah, we decided Mount Hermon instead of Mount Tabor. 
So that means that they're up in and around Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi, if you're like in the actual city, okay, this is totally Roman, totally Greek, whatever you want to call it. But they're just sort of in and around Mount Hermon. And again, to get that picture in your head, Mount Hermon kind of represents, it's, it's more of a, 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 a range of mountains. It's kind of, kind of wide along there. And it represents the northern boundary of the land of Israel. And so you can imagine the people that are here, they could, they, it could just as easily have been all Jewish. It could have been a mix of people. We don't really know, but they're not in the city proper. So, so you got to figure there's, there's some real Jewish uh, influence here in this crowd, and it may have been entirely Jewish. But they're, that would make them a part of the generation that's not accepting God's Messiah. And so again, it's that thing of, I don't know, is he just proclaiming frustration sort of out in the air? Is he talking to them directly? Whatever, we don't, we don't really know. So anyway, he, he seems frustrated. This is more like the second sigh. Remember the two sighs we had before? <laughs> and they bring this boy to him. And when they do, the unclean spirit it's, it sees Jesus and it starts thrashing this boy about. And what's interesting is now, now picture this in your mind. The guy's bringing him up, the demon sees Jesus, and this kid just starts having a fit right there on the ground, the whole thing. So Jesus thinks, well, this is probably a good time to have a little conversation. So how long has this been happening, Right. It's the weirdest thing. Now, maybe this is just Mark's storytelling, whatever, I don't know, but that's just weird. Sounds like a very humorous, like, current medical scene with, like, a doctor, like, looking at a patient who's, like, gushing blood from an artery. He's like, so, how long has this been happening to you? Exactly. It would be that kind of weird, funny, whatever. It seems like a skit, but, you know, I don't, I don't think Mark meant it that way at all. It's just, I don't know. But anyway, the father goes ahead and answers this question. Hey, he's been doing this since childhood. Explains some more details of what the spirit does. And then he makes another plea for help. And I don't know how you see it. There's different ways of seeing it. But I I kind of feel like the guy messes up a little bit. Because when he's asking for help, he says, if you can. And Jesus really picked up on it. And just to be clear, you know, underneath in the Greek, it's it's more like if you are able. So so that's the sense in which we need to understand that guy said it. If you are able to do anything, please help us. But Jesus, he picks up on it. He's like, if you can, right? Like, really? Do you... (laughs) I'm the Messiah. You came to me, and now you're saying, if you can? It's just kind of funny. But there's a couple of ways, there's a couple of ways that we could take that. The first one is, uh, if if Jesus was sort of thinking about himself and and kind of the way I'm already starting to present it, maybe he was a little bit, I don't know, slightly uh, offended or bothered or something. It's more of a, okay, what do you mean, if? you can. I'm Messiah. Of course I can. All things are possible for one who believes, you know, like like me, the Messiah, like I believe. 
So you could take it that way. Another way to take it is, well, what do you mean if I can? It's more about if you can. All things are possible for one who believes, even you, and and even this, this thing that you're looking at. Now, for now, you can kind of take your pick. See which, I don't know which you think is more appropriate, or maybe you've got a third or fourth idea in your head, whatever, that's all fine. But don't hold on to it too tightly, because as we continue through the story, you may, I don't know, you may feel differently about it or whatever. But he, he goes on by, so he gives him that phrase about all things are possible. So Samuel, you know we do this a lot. When he says all, do you think he really means literally all things are possible? I want to plead the fifth. I don't know. Uh, right. I mean, there's truth and like a literary technique seeming to seeming to be going on at the same time. Right. And it's really hard to know. It's hard to know. And so we need to talk about it a little bit. And I'm actually going to do the famous, okay, does he really mean all? Well, yes and no. Okay. So what do we mean? Well, like we've talked about in other places, right? We, we, we kind of got to pay attention to the context of the story. Now we've got the big story, And then we've got the one that we're in right at this moment. So number one, we've said things like this before. When you're reading your Bible, when you're thinking about the story, how Christianity works, God works, all this kind of stuff. Okay, this isn't Bewitched or Harry Potter or any other magical thing, whatever. We're talking about belief in the one with the real power behind everything. We're talking about belief in God himself. Self. And so when we say all things, well, there's kind of this extra little bit that they have to line up with whatever it is that God is doing. So, on one hand, do you think there's anything that is not possible for God? And we would go, well, no. So, therefore, all things are possible. But then you got to go, yeah, but. Is God just going to do whatever you want him to do whenever you want him to do it? Well, no. So somewhere in there, you got to be in tune with God. So here's the question, Samuel. Does this mean that our unbelief might lead us to miss out on some things? Seems totally reasonable. Yeah. And I think that we could go back just to the story about Jesus back in Nazareth. It seemed like there was more available to them, but Jesus didn't really do it or couldn't do it. We talked about that. So they missed out. All right, so here's another question. Does this mean that our 100% full, true belief, I mean, we got it going on. Could it be completely impotent? Because it's just not aligned with what God is actually doing. Mm -hmm. See that happening around even our own country right now. Yeah, yeah. And see, the thing is, people get so hung up on this. They want to be able to nail it down. They want to be able to say, here's how faith works. This is what I'm going to do. And everything's going to work out the way I want it to. And it just isn't like that in the scripture. It's, It's something more like, 
through belief, we have access to the Almighty God and what He is doing. And so you could say the difference would be, well, you could be like a pipe that's just dribbling water. That's you, you know, believing and getting what God's going, got going on right now. Or you could be a pipe with flowing, like, all that the spiritual physics will allow. And I thought about this. I don't know if this is going to be a good example or not, but I actually think it is. So, Samuel, I want you to imagine this is a completely ridiculous hypothetical example, okay? Pretend that God wakes up one morning and he decides, you know what? Today, I am just going to fill up empty refrigerators for people who are just a little short on cash. All right, so you got that image in your head, Samuel? I believe so. All right. And so, your faith or your belief may actually play a role in hindering or allowing that in your life. And so, how does that work out? Well, if, let's say, for example, God didn't wake up in the morning and decide that he was going to start filling up refrigerators. Well, no matter what you are trying to generate a whole bunch of faith and belief and all this stuff about, well, it doesn't matter. It isn't going to make it happen. If God's not doing it, you're not going to make it happen. Now, on, on one hand, our, our, our faith, our belief, we can say that there is a sense in which it is all-powerful, but it isn't magic. Again, God isn't some sort of cosmic bellhop. And then, of course, there are other times God is going to act and he's going to do it with or without you and your faith. He's just going to do it, right? So, I don't know, Samuel, I know we've talked about this topic before and we're just, we're, we're doing it again because in my mind, this has been, I've seen this a lot in the church. People get the wrong idea. They try to narrow it down to be just just too specific a thing, and they end up being disappointed. And in the worst cases, they actually are upset with God. They walk away from God, whatever. I don't want to see that happen. So this little example of things we're talking about so far, are we kind of making some sense? I think so. I mean, it's something I'm still internally wrestling with as you give that illustration. But what came to mind there at the end was thinking about especially that statement, sometimes God acts with or without your faith as well. It's almost like God is this steamrolling train that is moving towards the final destination of the redemption of all things. And he's like, if anyone wants to be a part of this, like you better jump on board because like I'm going to the finish line, whether or not you want to be on it or not. So it's kind of like that. It's like, the opportunity is there, the, the desire is there for you to be a part of it. Like That doesn't mean that when you jump onto the train that everyone's experience as you're heading towards that destination is going to be exactly the same because right. we all perceive and experience things differently, but that invitation is still there to participate. Yeah, yeah. So, so why did I have to take some extra time to talk about this? Because we really didn't need to, whatever, but... Listen to what the guy says. This is the dad, okay? This is where I think it fits in. The dad says, I believe, 
help my unbelief. So here we got this guy, the father, he's schizophrenic and so is he. Okay, not really. Because if we think that he is, well then, aren't we all? I mean, this is actually an incredibly honest and beautiful response. It's so, so very human. See, faith isn't binary. It's not like either you have it or you don't. I mean, I guess it's possible it could be. But faith, more realistically, more practically in your life, it's something that can grow, something that should grow through knowledge and practice. And all of us live with a mixture of belief and unbelief. And all of us need some help, some shoring up or some topping off. And now let's get practical, Samuel. Here's this guy. He's standing in front of Jesus. He's asking him to heal his son. Do you think that this father had already prayed plenty? I I gotta believe he did. Yeah, we have no proof. But just thinking about what we know about people, religious people, the times they were in, culture, all of that, this guy's probably prayed a lot. And how much has he seen in terms of results? On all accounts, it seems to be nada if this has been happening to his child since he was little. Yeah, it's a big fat zero, right? And so then, is it unreasonable for him to have some doubt? I mean, can you imagine how... How much that has to degrade your sense of spirit and vivaciousness in life to have your child, your own flesh and blood, to be going through this basically since coming out of the womb as a toddler and nothing seeming to change. Like that, ha- that has to be so disheartening. It's like this unbearable atlas stone weight on you right yeah yeah and okay daniel lancaster i know i've talked about him before he writes a lot of stuff he works with ffoz whatever he i think said it in a way that's going to really resonate with everybody listening right now he says it like this while the man believed god could heal the boy He didn't necessarily believe that he would. And that's where you get, I believe. I know that God can. Help my unbelief. I'm not convinced that he will. I've already prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing's happened so far. I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't do it. So it's so understandable. And it's a great picture of our walk. I mean, this should, uh, I would guess everybody listening should be going, oh man, I know what that's like. And so we're seeing it. This, this is real life, but we also need to pay attention to the rest of the story and help us to see how we live with that. Now, the text says something really weird. It says, Jesus saw that a crowd came running. I don't even know what that has to do anything right in the middle of the story. And I don't know if, if we're to, to get the idea that Jesus maybe stepped aside with the father and then the crowd that was already there, you know, came to join them because they saw stuff going on. Or maybe 
the crowd that was already there was was just growing, like people were continuing to show up from around and it was just starting to get sort of big and chaotic. Either way, you see it again. Jesus, he's he's paying attention. He cares that he might be becoming too much of a spectacle. And he never seems to like that. He wants to kind of shut it down. So Jesus gets down to business. And he rebukes the spirit. Kind of cool. Tells it to get out and never come back. <laughs> Things that you just don't think of, right? I mean, he's cast out spirits before, and I don't remember him saying that. What does that mean? <laughs> it's just, it's a weird thing to see. But just for future reference, if you ever find yourself in the position of trying to play the role and cast out a demon, well, you may want to tell him to get out and you may want to include and never come back. I don't know. I, I could have sworn that you were referencing Lord of the Rings there where uh, <laughs> Smeagol and Gollum are like going back and forth. And I think that's the two towers. And at one point... The Smeagol part of the schizophrenia is like, leave now and never come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be a good sound effect, but I, I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's, it's, he tells it, get out, never come back. But did you notice when Jesus did that, how did he refer to the spirit? He called it a mute and deaf spirit crazy thing, deafness wasn't even mentioned before. This is the first we've heard of it. And remember all of the the, the descriptions of the things that were happening, all, all the stuff going on with this kid, and I don't know, if it were me, I probably would have focused on something else. Mute and deaf weren't the ones that immediately stood out. If he'd have called him a tormenting spirit, yeah, I could have been okay with that. A foul spirit, yeah, that would have made some sense. A rebellious spirit, a spirit of bondage, any anything like that, I would have been going, oh, yeah, Jesus, go get that guy. But no, he picks mute and deaf, which is another argument against the idea of epilepsy. Anyway, but what I think is going on here, I think what we should recognize is that Jesus appears to recognize that these are the most important attributes of this unclean spirit, this demon, and he identifies the demon as such. This kind of fits in if you've ever, we're not going to do it, but if you could see sort of like the, the rules or instructions for how to do an exorcism, Jesus kind of goes along with some of those rules. It's very interesting, but anyway. It's also important to notice that this spirit was pretty tough. Remember, he'd already avoided the disciples. They couldn't do anything. It continued crying out and thrashing the boy before it finally left. And, at least to those standing around, it appeared to have either killed him or nearly killed him. And then we get this final little bit. says that Jesus takes him by the hand, lifts him up. And when I see that, I wonder, oh, oh, we just thought he was dead, but, you know, Jesus sort of gave him a little tap or something, and he kind of came to, and then Jesus helped him stand up. Well, that could have been it. But I also wonder, is this kind of uh, uh, just a, a side note little miracle? Was the kid really actually I don't know what you call it, injured or or something, scarred by this demon, 
and it by Jesus taking his hand and lifting him up, is that actually, you know, might we think of that as yet another miracle? I don't know. Yeah, well, when you were reading through it, especially at the end of that verse when it says, after the comma, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, comma, and he arose. Like, that just yeah. gives off this these vibes of, like, you know, a mini resurrection kind of symbolism yeah. here with, with the little yeah. kid. Yeah, it's very interesting. And again, you know, that's not one of those where we can say, oh, this is totally what it means. But that's a really interesting way of viewing it, both ways in, uh, of viewing that. So I don't know, just a kind of a cool, interesting story. You got any any more comments or questions on that, Samuel? No, I think you you covered this really well. I just love this this story with this man. And like you said, it I connect with it in so many ways. And I hope other people connect with it too because it's 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 our own life and our journey in faith with god so yeah yeah the the opposite of faith is not doubt the opposite of faith is unbelief Um, yeah and doubt can lead to future revelations of god and his story in your life so yeah leave some room to embrace the doubt so that god can use it to show you something more about himself down the road. Yeah, and that's that's good because oh, so many people, it's like they just beat themselves up every time they aren't perfectly like Jesus. It's crazy. Now, you know, we're big fans of, hey, you know what? We all need to be like Jesus. I mean, that's the goal and we got to go for it. But man, when you when you fall short, don't beat yourself up. It's, I don't know. It's good. It's good. Well, here's another reason we talked already a lot about faith and belief, that kind of stuff, because the disciples are now going to act, I think, exactly like we probably would. Ready? Matthew chapter 17, verses 19 to 21, and Mark chapter 9, verses 28 and 29. I'm going to go ahead and read from Matthew this time. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we? not cast it out. He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And I'm going to go ahead and read verse 21, even though it may or may not be in your translation. Some translations include, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Hmm. Now, I don't know, maybe you can see why it isn't in some translations or whatever. (laughs) It's not because of the content. It's because some manuscripts have it and some don't. That's it. And I also, Mark, his verse 29 is also kind of interesting because he, he does say it, he says, it's like in, in our text, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And then some translations include and fasting and others don't. And again, it's, it's a manuscript thing. Some of them have it, some don't. So a little bit uh, you know, I don't know if we want to say controversial, but a little bit weird because translations are different or whatever. But Let's see what the disciples got going on here. 
So the disciples finally get Jesus alone. And now, also interesting, Mark says they are at the house. Well, what house? (laughs) Right? Are we supposed to know something about that? Have they made their way back to the Galilee yet? We're going to hear about that in a second or, you know, coming up soon. But it seems like they're still back in near Caesarea Philippi or whatever. We don't really know. So, you know, just take the easy way out. We're just assuming that they're staying somewhere in the area. And so wherever they that was, that house, they make it back there. But they want to know, why couldn't we cast it out? And we've already talked about this. They had done many things like this before. And you got to think, if you were them, they had probably started out thinking that they had, I don't know what you would call it, plenty of faith or belief, or had faith and belief, or I don't know, they understood, I don't know, something, at least on their part, and yet, no results. What the heck was going on? They, I, If I was them, I would have been confused. They seem confused. And then in Matthew, this, Samuel, oh, this is so interesting. As far as I can tell, pretty much every translation does the same thing. Jesus says to them, it's because they have too little faith. And they have Jesus saying it like it's a statement. Okay? Now, if we read it that way, then you see that Jesus is adding that it, it only takes a very little faith to even move mountains. So, I guess we're supposed to imagine, gee, just look how little faith they must have had. But that's a little bit weird. Because remember, these are nine guys who've done all this before. They've done it many times. They probably thought they had the goods, right? Yeah, we've done this. Heck, there's nine of us here. Bring the boy up here. We'll take care of it. And then it turns out they, they don't have enough faith when it only takes a little bit to move mountains. Okay. On one hand, we can't argue that this is somehow a bad translation or a bad interpretation. We're not saying that. But it's a little weird within the context of the story. And if we include the bit about, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting, or even if you just include Mark's part, it it doesn't come out by anything but prayer, then you start going, uh, somehow that feels contradictory. You're telling me it's because I have little faith. Then you're telling me it's because it only comes out a certain way. So did they lack faith or did they lack the prayer and fasting? And so now it's a little weird. And so because of that, there are some who argue for a different kind of reading. And here's the interesting part. Samuel, you know, and I'm assuming our audience knows by now, the Hebrew, the Greek, whatever, it doesn't have punctuation. So things like periods, quotations, comma, question mark, all that kind of stuff, they're not in there. And so the translators, or these these scholars are saying, you know, we, we don't have a problem with the words so much. We just think that it shouldn't be a period. We shouldn't be saying, because of your little faith. They suggest that it should be a question mark, like, do you suppose it's because of your little faith? And, and when you take it that way, that, that, that means he would be saying something more like, okay, 
why couldn't you cast it out? Are you thinking that it's because you don't have enough faith? The truth is, you've got plenty of faith. I mean, even the tiniest bit can move mountains. So this, too, is well within your grasp. And and when you read it like that, you may agree or disagree, whatever, that's fine. But that actually makes the whole section of Scripture make some more sense. And so you see, and remember, Samuel, is it inherently our faith that's causing the mountain to move? No, it's, I mean, it's who the faith is being directed towards. Yeah, in the end, it's God who's moving the mountain. Our faith isn't making it happen. Our faith is in the one who can do it. So we just need to have our faith in him. But I just think that is a very interesting picture. And it, it, it whether these little sections that are in some translations and not in some translations, whether they should or shouldn't be included, okay, it's a real question. It's a good question. But it makes the whole thing make sense, especially when you use Mark and Matthew together because Mark definitely includes that part. This can't be driven out by anything other than prayer. So, I don't know. I thought that was kind of cool. I think it's worth thinking about, hearing about, hold on to that. And so here we are. Now we've got this new bit of information. Sometimes, something even more than faith and belief is required. Sometimes, There's prayer required, and it doesn't give us a real instructional handbook on how that works, but for whatever, okay, prayer. And depending on which original manuscripts or earlier manuscripts or whatever you trust, it might be prayer and fasting. Now, what's interesting about that is remember, Jesus just came down from the mountain, and, and the question is, what was he doing up there besides transfiguring? Well. Apparently, he was praying, and he may have even been fasting. How do I know this? Well, because he was able to cast it out, and he said, you needed that to cast it out, right? So, remember, he and the three may have spent the last seven days fasting. We don't know it, but it would have been common enough. Remember how we had the six days versus eight days controversy. Mm -hmm. And we said the people talking about six days, that actually fit with a very, very common approach to, you know, going into a big event, like like your uh, spiritual moment. It was just a a thing. It was a a six or seven day ritual. So we know because of the text that Jesus actually did spend the last day and night in prayer. And these nine disciples that had failed to cast out the demon, well, they weren't with Jesus, and they weren't with the other three. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe they weren't doing the prayer and the fasting, at least certainly not to degree to the degree that the four were. So this, this whole faith and belief for healing and exorcism, etc., I hate to say it, it's actually getting a little more murky as opposed to getting more clear. So here's the thing, and and we're just, in some ways we're repeating stuff we've already talked about, but I just think it's really important. But let's summarize this. So faith and belief, when we talk about it, 
are we talking about it like belonging to whom? I mean, are we talking about the faith and the belief of the one that's receiving the miracle? Well, we could be. We've seen some examples that have definitely had that. Or are we talking about the one that's requesting the miracle on another's behalf? Well, now that you mention it, we've actually seen that too. How about the faith or belief of the one performing the miracle? Well, now that you mention that, we've seen that too. The thing is, we've seen examples of all of these, and we've even seen examples where, at least in the text, it wasn't mentioned, seemingly none of these are involved in any way. And so, it means that, you know, there's still some mystery that remains. And here's the important part about that. That's okay. It's okay for mysteries to remain. We don't have to know everything. And so again, rather than getting too hung up on the details of how it works, if I do this, God will move. Instead of worrying about that, we just need to recognize the simple truth of what we're being called to, what we're being invited to. It's the idea that we we just must have faith. We need to pursue faith, and it must be ever-growing. If our focus is simply on that, okay, you know what? We're, we're doing well. And remember, faith isn't just what you think or believe. It's not something that you can manufacture inside yourself. It's you trusting and acting on that trust. That's what it's really all about. So these are great stories in and of themselves. We're throwing in an extra emphasis on faith and belief, whatever. I don't know, Samuel. I think it's probably close to time for us to end. So surely you've got something to take us home. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I love everything that you've said. It's brought up so many things that come to mind. I think there's just a few things I want to either hopefully add to the discussion. The first thing is recommendation. Um, probably, I, w- I would assume that most of our listeners probably <laughs> don't enjoy listening to Christian hip-hop or rap, but there is this guy, <laughs> shout out to Jaffe, uh, you know who you are. His name is Andy Menio, and we'll, I will put the link in our show notes for tonight's episode. He has a song that's called Clarity, and there's a music video behind it where it sh- it shows all the lyrics, but he in that song he wrestles with this same thing that the father wrestles in this story. It is su- it's such a powerful song. Like it comes up. I mean, I think about it probably on a monthly or weekly basis. So it's it's worth listening, even if you don't like that genre, because the message behind it is really great. Um, the next cool. thing I wanted to say is that this alternate way of viewing Jesus's response to his disciples about their faith, I think that it gives like humanity, like people as followers and pursuers of God, more agency and exhortation in their journey rather than seeing this situation as a, a form of belittling or demeaning because of the struggle. And I think that that gets at the heart of like, how our Western minds think about uh, correction and hardship and challenge versus 
the Jewish and Eastern way. And you, you can take that all the way back to Genesis 1. Like the, the creation story was never meant to like tell humanity, like this is how broken you are. Like it, the, the story started by saying, like, look how great you have been created. Like God yeah. has given you everything that you need and he is asking and inviting you to rest in that promise, to rest in that truth. And let that be our your identity because it is good. And so in this case, Jesus is saying to his disciples, like, no, like in the same way that like all the way back with Peter um, out on the water trying to follow Jesus. And maybe we were hinting at was Peter doubting in Jesus or was Peter doubting himself? Like yeah. Jesus maybe is getting at the heart of that as saying is like maybe the issue is that you don't believe in yourself that this authority that I've given you, this new position of leadership within my ministry, that you're capable of doing this whenever, like, me as your rabbi, I believe in you. So, like, you need to, like, remind yourself of that. And, and like, I'm not promoting, like, Christian self-help or new age, like, just believe in yourself and, like, everything (laughs) will work out great. But, like, I mean, we live in such a demeaning and... Um, a culture that finds every opportunity to break us down, like it, it has to feel refreshing for things of God to be saying, like, "Whoa, God actually wants you to do good things and to pursue righteousness and to succeed in that." And He's saying that yeah. you are capable in doing that. Like, yeah, I mean, that's got to get somebody fired up rather than the old way of saying, like, "Look how terrible you are." Like, you're, you know. The only way you can do is just hope that God will intercede and, you know, take control of your puppetness and do it all for you. So, yeah. anyway, that, that last part was a little bit of a rant. <laughs> That's good, uh, though. And um, this last thing, I, n- this is not anything that is confirmed, but it's just Samuel's midrash. Um, Jesus' statement about saying that, um, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Th- I, I got this a little bit from a Marty Solomon teaching in Bema Discipleship. I don't have the episode off the top of my head, but he brought up the cultural context that Herod the Great in the first in first century Judaism, whenever the second temple got built, that his goal was to take the entire mountainside and completely transform it into a platform for the mountain, like the the temple structure to be built on top of. Like he essentially was wanting to move the mountain and then build the temple. Like, I mean, obviously there was like non-religious desires behind that to show off his greatness as like the, the ruler of the Jews and everything. But could Jesus have been hinting at that to say like, look, look at the empire of Rome and them saying that, you know, putting just an ounce of faith in Herod and what he's capable of doing, that they can take an entire mountain and build a temple complex on it. Like, think about the the, the kingdom of God and what can happen if you put that type of faith that they did in earthly things and put it towards, like, restoring humanity back to what God wanted them to. Like, yeah. like think, think what's capable in that instance. So... I don't know if that's true, but that's what came to mind, and maybe it's a cool little detail. Now, that's really good because they uh, 
I mean, for them in their life, that would have been something that they they were familiar with. But they they may or may not have seen some portion of that with their very own eyes. I mean, they're they're pretty young, but uh, you know, they may have gotten to see some of that. And you're right. I mean, it's like, look, if that is sort of a an illusion behind the scenes, look at what man was capable of. And your faith is in God. Just imagine what he is capable of. And so, you know, faith like a grain of mustard seed, just a little bit. And it doesn't matter because you're in, your faith is in the all-powerful, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's good. Good stuff. Well, let's see. Uh... Well, it doesn't matter. We're out of time. We're cutting it off. (laughs) whether I think it's a good spot or not. So, Samuel, we're done. We're not done yet. Uh-oh. What? Uh, this is a festive episode, Paul, and we wanted what? to take just small little bit to wish all of our okie-dokie listeners um, a very Merry Christmas and that the light of the birth of the Messiah is present in your home and among your family and friends and that... We can continue to accompany you through the holidays and onward in a new year of hope and restoration of our lives. Good call, Samuel. Should we sing Merry Christmas to you? I was going to say, give us some figgy pudding, but... (laughs) Yeah, you know what? Good call, Samuel. Merry Christmas, everybody. Samuel! Say Merry Christmas! <laughs> That's so good. All right, we're out of here. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.